Hello, Spikes and Mikes and Slackers and Dykes and all the ships at sea, and welcome to A Very Good Year, the movie podcast where we invite a guest to pick their favorite year of movies and talk to us about that year. I'm your host, Jason Bailey, still here in Austin, Texas for South by Southwest, and across the mic and halfway across the country from me is my co-host, Michael Hull. Our guest today is, I, I guess, say, an honest-to-goodness legend in the world of independent cinema. He is a filmmaker, film programmer, and film professor, but he is best known for his time in the trenches as a producer's rep, which means he helped independent filmmakers sell their films. Those films included Spike Lee's She's Gotta Have It, Errol Morris's The Thin Blue Line, Michael Moore's Roger and Me, Richard Linklater's Slacker, Kevin Smith's Clerks, and Rose Troach's Go Fish. He wrote about those experiences in the seminal indie film book, Spike, Mike, Slackers, and Dykes, a favorite of mine in college that I must have read a half dozen times. Seminal. <laughs> and he followed that book with the long-running IFC Channel magazine series, Split Screen. This is the great John Pearson. Hello, John. Thank you for letting me take a year. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, did I did I did, did I get anything wrong? Because you said you've been getting a lot of tributes lately, and they're not always well, right. We do. We got inducted into the Texas Film Hall of Fame just one week ago. And, that was uh, the first question. I, I, I don't care what anybody says about me, but Rose Trochet. Rose Trochet. Rose Trochet. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, you were. You you and your, your, your amazing wife, Janet, were recently honored by the Texas Film Awards. Um, a big, big hullabaloo, and Kevin Smith came in to introduce you. I mean, do you, do you feel – how do you feel about being – you know, at this point in your career where you're getting these sort of lifetime achievement awards? Well, again, the last two decades of my life um, have been, professionally speaking, have been dominated by my better half. <laughs> I've never used that expression before this very moment. Janet. <laughs> Janet. Um, yeah. And so I've just been easing out of the public eye. And mm -hmm. fortunately, because I would have been saying all kinds of things that would have gotten me in big trouble recently. <laughs> so the nineties were a much better moment for me. Um, but it's, it's nice. Uh, it's nice to look at the body of work as I always say about filmmakers. Yeah. And since we've been involved with some filmmakers who really have had an amazingly long lasting extended body of work. I, I love that phrase. Um, Spike always used it, even when he was only a few years in. He just right. had the sense you need a body of work. You need a body of work. First five for five did a book called Five for Five, but then kept going and going yeah. and going. You know, yeah. uh, like the Energizer Bunny. So I, I'm 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 proud to have made an impact. I feel like mine was more at the time when we were inventing sure. the world, the independent film world as we know it now. Mm -hmm. And I feel that Janice just sort of sustained things. Mm -hmm. uh, that sounds like I'm I'm, I'm poo-pooing what she's done. She's just kept uh, kept things going. Yeah. Um, in more recent times. And for those who don't know, Janet spent how long uh, as the the head of South by Southwest? Film? Fifteen years, which man took a toll. Yeah. I mean, I worked hard, but I'm not sure that that that's a very intense work all the time year round. But in the month surrounding the festival and in the ten days of the festival, I. I don't know how she made it through. Yeah. Uh, hard. Yeah. Not exactly an avid outdoors person in the first place. So. <laughs> it's a test. It was a yeah. real test. Yeah. Um, I will say, yeah, moving on. <laughs> so, okay. Well, tell us uh, after much poking and prodding, uh, what year you chose to talk about today and why why you wanted to, to, to focus on that year. Oh, I picked 1989. It was a great year personally um, between, um, well, you know, somewhere near the middle end of the year, Roger and me came into my life and I think basically changed the uh, history of documentary film. Mm -hmm. um, but earlier in the year, um, it was a time for Spike Lee um, to move from 
way back when with uh, with with me with us in 1986, and she's got to have it into his third film, Do the Right Thing, uh, which premiered in Cannes that year, and which is uh, just a knock your soul. I believe probably one of the top five films of my lifetime. Yeah, and I don't know if you're going to have anybody older on the show than me. <laughs> I'm almost 69, so my lifetime is longer than many of the other people's lifetimes. Sure, too. just to pull rank a little bit. <laughs> I like being old. I've seen so much. Uh, <laughs> I saw Jack Ruby shoot Lee Harvey Oswald on live TV. On live TV. I really did. Um, well, well, for, for context sake, you know, take us back to where you were in 1989 in your career, sort of in your life as 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 a film rep and as a, a producer and, and, and all and those again, things. Yes. Yeah, so, so backing up a little bit, one thing that um, also did happen on occasion and then more frequently later is we would rep the films, but I would also invest from time to time mm-hmm. she's got to have it being the most notable case and it's still paying dividends nice um it is nice because yeah. you know all those streamers come along yeah and, yeah the money keeps coming <laughs> uh, there was a tv series all there was years. so um i i had i hadn't been involved with parting lances uh with just the first film in which steve buscemi has a, yeah. a, a starring role um, right before she's got to have it, that's the money that went into she's got to have it. And then there were a few more films uh, in 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 1987, including Lizzie Borden's excellent and oh, still overlooked Working Girls. Great movie. Which, when people hear it, they confuse it with Working yep. Girl, and so it's even more uh, bad news. Um, that's how my dad saw Working Girls: was they went to the video store and got it accidentally, but they loved it. It was a it was a wonderful. Uh, that's uh, okay. All right. Good. 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 Um, <laughs> And then, interestingly, things looked like they were taking off, you know, that, that whole moment of that birthing and and fast growth moment for independent film, which I, I think really uh, is spawned by Stranger Than Paradise mm-hmm. a little bit sooner in 84. Um, everything looked like it was going great guns. Um, but if you used Sundance as a measure, for example, because I was on the selection committee uh, there in the late 80s. 88 was actually um, a bad year. Mm. Uh, it was a really problematic year. And it was a slow year for us as well um, because the only film, and it was an odd relationship uh, because of just different personalities involved, was The Thin Blue Line. Mm-hmm. Again, very, very, very great and hugely important film for documentary film. Extremely influential. Um, but that was a say, kind of a quiet year. Mm-hmm. Um, but the good, it wasn't a quiet year at home because... Uh, we had a baby. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> in, 80, in 87, who was, you know, a year old then. So uh, it was fun. And I got to spend a lot of time uh, around the house. But it was like, okay, 89's got to be better. Okay. 89's got to be better. And luckily, 89 was. 89 turned out to be fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Pause Marvelous. that. Pause <laughs> Pause there, because we're going we're gonna to do two things. Uh, we are going to walk through 89, and John chose, instead of doing a ranked list or a... Uh, uh, a favorites list to to pick the five sort of most cinematically uh, impactful films of 1989. Uh, so we're going to go through that. But before we do that, here's headlines. Good evening. With every hour, it's becoming more apparent that one of the most pristine coastlines in the world has been fouled in a way that may never be undone. And with every hour, there is more anger aimed at Exxon. The oil company's corporate responsibility, or lack of it, is the focus of Tony Russomano's report tonight. Tony? Anna, the Alaskan oil spill is a testament to indecision and folly, and to too much faith in technology, and too little respect for nature. 
The Exxon Valdez ran aground in Alaska's Prince William Sound and spilled 240,000 barrels of oil. I don't know if anybody remembers that. Mm-hmm. It wasn't reported on much at the time. <laughs> it lasted all year. Unless you yeah. ever turned on the television yeah. or looked at a newspaper or read magazines. Yeah, it was a it was a big old mess. That's what I remember about that. There was lots of footage of it being a big old mess up in uh, up in Alaska. Oily ducks. Yeah. I was like, where'd they get the ducks from? A lot of B-roll of oily ducks. In April, the U.S. government seized the Lincoln Savings and Loan Association and put Charles Keating in jail for the massive savings and loan crisis, which is not as well known now as it should be because there's been so much more bigger, somehow worse fuckery than this. But the Keating really, really set the uh, set the tone. He set the bar yeah. for uh, for the 2000s. Yeah, you know, it, I think it's notable because that was a situation where someone actually went to fucking jail for uh, <laughs> for white collar financial crime. So you know, it's imagine that. that. Unlike two thousand eight. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Jesus, something to learn from nineteen eighty nine. Nineteen eighty nine was the start of the Central Park jogger case in New York City, in mm-hmm. which a terrible event that happened to one person was turned into a terrible event that happened to several people. Five uh, young, innocent black men were arrested for the assault, and there's several movies about all the terrible shit that happened to them. Yeah. The Ken, the Ken Burns documentary, it, really good. So it's, it's so powerful and moving. Yeah. And Ava DuVernay's uh, the mm-hmm. fictional limited series is also just fabulous. Terrific. Good, yeah. 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 Really well done. It's her best film. It is now well into Sunday morning in Beijing. In the aftermath of last night's violence, one hospital doctor is now estimating that at least... 500 people died in the bloodbath. He said, and I quote, my government has gone insane. Let me pause and emphasize that no one has confirmed that there are 500 dead. Thousands of combat troops from the People's Liberation Army now occupy Tiananmen Square in Beijing. The students are gone. Uh, The Tiananmen Square protests happened in China. Mm -hmm. Uh, To be honest, like I don't know enough about the details of the CCP to know whether or not those protests changed anything, they killed a lot of people. They sure did. And we heard about it a lot because we were really proud. We saw that image of the, 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 the kids standing in front of the tank. We saw that a lot. Tank guy. Yep, tank guy. This uh, this one I don't know much about, but I find fascinating. I've tried to read as much as I can, but there's not a lot of interviews with this lady. Thai financial scammer May Shamoy Tipyaso and accomplices are each sentenced to 141,078 years in prison. Well, that's quite the a longest sentence. recorded prison term since Jesus. at least since anybody started writing them down. Yeah, she was uh, she was basically doing a Madoff, mm-hmm. uh, but she ended up having investors at, at like the highest levels of the government and military. So she just sort of pissed off the wrong people uh, and ended up getting one hundred forty one thousand years in prison. How long of that did she uh, serve, Mike? Well, this is I'm an American, so this is the part this is the part that I really can't fathom. She only did four years and she's out. She's eighty two now and apparently Imagine that. fine. Yeah. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Hopefully she's uh, scamming people at poker. <laughs> this is CNN breaking news. Good evening. I'm Gene Randall in Washington. We are standing by for an Oval Office address by President Bush, as he contributes to a day even historians may have trouble describing. A day when Mikhail Gorbachev resigned as the president of a Soviet Union which had already ceased to exist. The new power broker, Russian President Boris Yeltsin. In a statement issued a short time ago, President Bush praised Gorbachev for what he called his years of sustained commitment to world peace. He also spoke of his intellect, vision and courage. 
The two men spoke by phone before Gorbachev delivered his televised resignation speech. But the big news in 89 was the apparently sudden collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, the borders between communist and non-communist states, known as the Iron Curtain, started to come down. There were protests in East Germany that resulted in the fall of the Berlin Wall and ultimately reunification. In November was the Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia. December was the Singing Revolution in Lithuania. And, like, those both sound like great things to be a part of. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll enjoy vel- – I enjoy Velvet and Singing, so hooray for both revolutions. See? Right? For some reason, I feel like Lou Reed must be at the front of the protest with a guitar or something. I don't know. That doesn't really uh, seem like him. But yeah. But you really knew it was over when Nathan's Famous opened a hot dog stand in, in Moscow. Shout out to Nathan's Famous. Shout out to Nathan's Famous. Yeah. American classic. Yeah. Uh, lots of people died in okay. 1989. All right. Salvador Dali, Ted Bundy was executed in Florida. And I am not a supporter of the death penalty, but they can have a pass on that asshole. Yep. <laughs> uh, historian Barbara Tuckman died, Abby Hoffman, Sugar Ray Robinson, All right. Lucille Ball, Sergio Leone, Gilda Radner, John Cassavetes. Whew, that's a hard... Yeah, I'm going to take that as my dream blunt rotation, those four. Yeah, that's a tough... That list just got tough. Yeah. Uh, C.L.R. James, a wonderful writer, Mel Blanc, Lawrence Olivier, Huey P. Newton, peace be upon him, Irving Berlin, Graham Chapman from Monty Python, Betty Davis, Alvin Ailey, and finally... Oh, man, I got to put in some fucking music for this one. <laughs> Joe Spinell, R.I.P. Joe Spinell. So if Pauline Kale is our patron saint of this show, what is Joe Spinell? Um, like, mascot is not the right word. Like, spiritual father, he's got to have king. a title. Sleazebag king. king. That's what I'm going to call Joe Spinell. <laughs> God rest his soul. God bless him. All right. Yeah. Uh, the San Francisco 49ers beat the Cincinnati Bengals to win Super Bowl twenty three. One-armed pitcher Jim Abbott debuted for the California Angels. He was neat. He would put his glove on his short arm, pitch, and then put his pitching hand in the glove to field. Like lightning fast, like okay. because he had to have his glove on in the time it took for the ball to travel to the batter and then back to him. Jesus. He was very exciting to watch. Yeah. All right. After nearly three decades in the game, baseball for Pete Rose became a vanished reality Thursday. Baseball Commissioner Bart Giamatti in New York ended six months of swirling questions and banished Pete Rose permanently from baseball in front of a backdrop appropriately draped in funereal black. The banishment for life of Pete Rose from baseball is the, is the sad end of a sorry episode. One of the game's greatest players has engaged in a variety of acts which have stained the game. And he must now live with the consequences of those acts. This is the year Pete Rose is banned for life. Ah. And there was no World Cup in 89, but the major indoor lacrosse league championship was a doozy. <laughs> was it, Mike? Resulting was it a doozy? <laughs> it was. Yeah, the Philadelphia Wings beat the New York Saints. And so oh, that was uh, right. that was very satisfying. I lost a yeah, bundle of money on that game. It was no World Cup, but All that's right. headlines. All right. Thank you, Mike. All right, John, so we are going to walk through 89. Uh, You've selected five extremely cinematically significant films of this year, and we're going to go through them by, uh, well, sort of release date, but more sort of when the world and you first saw them. So uh, where do we start? What is the first film on our list? Begin the begin. It's uh, Sundance. It's January. Um, Like I say, at that point, I was on the selection committee, but did not see Sex, Lies, and Videotape in advance. Rolling Stone says it's dazzling, fun, and scorchingly erotic. Oh. 
Why don't you let me tape you? Doing what? John and Anne don't have sex anymore. And Time Magazine calls it terrific. The season's smartest and funniest film. It's for me. Sex, lies, and videotape. It wasn't sent my way on the East Coast, where I got true love. Uh-huh. It was out there in L.A. with those people. Marjorie Scorus uh, of uh, Scorus Films um, was the person who I think was responsible for that film being in the lineup. You might think, how, especially after 88 being as weak as I just described it, right. where Heat and Sunlight, for example, won the Grand Jury Prize. I shouldn't say that. Rob Nielsen, <laughs> rest in peace. But really, seriously, that's the best you got. Um, and... Uh, so it, you would think that Sex Lives Videotape would be an obvious, immediate choice for anybody anywhere, but Marjorie had to actually uh, fight for it. Mm. So uh, God bless her for being uh, first, uh, first in line uh, to see what that film had to offer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't see it until the festival, and um, it, it, we were. You might also say, why is a distributor in her case and a guy producer's rep in my case on a selection committee? <laughs> Sure. For the major independent American independent sure. film festival. And later on, some people like Erwin Young from Do Art Film Lab did say that. And mm-hmm. I was no longer on the selection mm-hmm. committee. And that's I always think I am above conflict of interest. But I understand uh, that uh, <laughs> complaint. I had a film in called Prisoners of Inertia. I didn't pick it. They picked it without me. And there it played. Um, so uh, I didn't see the film until it played. And um, I, I got to say, it it, it it didn't just define Sundance. It really probably save Sundance. It saved the day after what had been a bad year where everybody was wondering, how does this go on? Mm-hmm. Is there a future here? Um, you know, and, and there's some bad films in 89, too, if you look at them. But uh, by the time Sex Lies had played for the first time, you know, this whole idea that like people, like even if they came, since it was a much less, it was, it was a minor blip. Right. At that point in history. Right. Right. Even people who came just were up for the first weekend and then out of there. I know some people still do that. Some people still do. Some of those agents. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) However, uh, it was amazing because of Sex Lies. People literally stayed or started coming to town later in the festival Mm -hmm. for its later screenings. Wow. It had that kind of magnetic drawing Mm -hmm. power. Mm -hmm. Um, I I wasn't even going to hardly talk about the film with you. Because I'm not even sure what I have to say at this point. I've seen right. it again. I, I think it's solid. And it's mm-hmm. very, on the one hand, it has sort of like stars. Sure. Not usual in that Sundance era. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely much more usual after, say, Pulp Fiction. Sure, sure. <laughs> but it, it's, it's still got that indie character driven element for sure. Mm-hmm. And it. It's a weird thing to say, but I think Kevin Smith might have pointed this out to me first. If you just break down the title, sex, mm-hmm. lies, and videotape, what doesn't sound good about that? Right. <laughs> and and in particular, I think with a videotape uh, incorporated into the into the body of the film, I don't think anybody had done that before. Right. And so, because it was still relatively fresh. Right. Uh, with VHS, right? And, mm-hmm. and especially with people shooting it and, you know, people weren't even watching all that much. I mean, we'd just gotten over 50% of households or whatever, right? right? So, it, somehow it just tapped into like a massive zeitgeist moment. Um, and as to the, the, the nature of those the re- relationships of those four people, yeah, I guess it was re- very relatable mm-hmm. um, in some way, shape or form. And I, it was funny that Soderbergh always sort of like didn't want to make it too 
sound too autobiographical. Right. I mean, later on in life, you've heard him admit like, yeah, sure. it was sort of that. But it's it wasn't really he wanted you to be able to put yourself in that film. And I think I think that's what happened. However, uh, very interesting development, um, again, on the, on the side of film distribution and releasing because it had been funded by a home video company. Right. RCA Columbia, right? Yeah, RCA Columbia, a major, major force mm-hmm. in so much independent film then. That, them and American Playhouse, believe it right. or not, on PBS. Right. Um, the, the, the video rights were not available as part of the package. Right. And that, for a lot of companies, either because they did the math and they didn't think it added up, or just on principle. Right. Like, what do you mean? We're not buying it without the video rights. We're doing all the work on theatrical, right. and then we can't cash in later. And right. There's some logic to that. Sure. So... When, when Miramax swooped in and made their their winning offer, uh, which I believe was $1.1 million, it's not like it was that much more than anybody else. And it wasn't like they were really like an established, you know, force at that. You know, we've right. done Working Girls with them. And when I did Working Girls, everybody, I was supposed to go to Circle and I pulled it at the last second and switched over. And Miramax did a great job. But everybody's like, I don't know, they're crooks. And, you know, what are they proven? I'm like, oh, I don't know. I think they're, I think there's something going on here. Right. And that sort of was their moment to prove it. Yeah. And to, um, to lead you into like where I'm, where I'm going next with this, uh, the fact that after acquiring that film, uh, Harvey Weinstein, whose name we're going to have to say a few times today, sorry, um, was able to engineer its entry into Cannes. And it was invited to Directors Fortnite like right away. Mm-hmm. But it went into the main competition. Yeah. And getting it into the main competition where they were not big on American Indies and where they were not big on showing Sundance films, that was a, that was a huge, huge, huge coup. Yeah. Yeah. And we will, I'm, I'm sure, get back to it a little bit later. But, you know, and also just the mere idea that you could take, you know, a, a, a relatively low budget independent film and put it into the theaters that they ended up putting it into that summer. Oh, if we jump ahead to start, to go to the theatrical release, which was a very large release at that time for for any independent film, uh, and which was most important, I think, uh, an August, early August release. Nobody nobody touched summer. That was for the big studios. Right. All those films (laughs) films <laughs> that were meant to draw millions and millions of people. Yeah. And the indies, like, they encroached on the very tail end, maybe mm-hmm. the Friday before Memorial Day, maybe, yep. you know, Sony Classics, or at that point, it would, it would have been Orion Classics, uh, Tom Bernard and Michael Barker, let's just call them by name. Mm-hmm. They would might sneak something in, like a Romer film. Sure. Um, but they weren't going to go in early August. Right. Even though that's an easier month than July, you know, right. they weren't going to go then. And, and the front end, same thing. Nobody, you would inch close to Memorial Day, but nobody really wanted to go past that point. So assertively going then in that way after after winning the Palm d'Or um, was a very aggressive and incredibly successful move. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the best example I can give of it is the most personal, which is that that movie played in the multiplex cinema in the mall in Mike and Mai's hometown of Wichita, Kansas. Like this was not a place that showed independent cinema, but it played there and people went. It was a provocative title. It had a, this incredible buzz around it. And God, it was a movie for grownups um, in the summer of Batman, which we'll get, we'll get back. To. We'll get back to that. Yes. But I'll, I'll also say that we did, we, I'm proud to take some credit on, on their move to do that because in 86, um, she's got to have it. Right. Also opened early August. And again, mm. a lot of people thought that was nuts. Right. Um, and they thought it was nuts because it seemed like a natural thing that it should be 
a fall festival title that just sure. built up, built up, built up. But we were like seeing it as a more, you know, as a film that had potential to get a different kind of audience, yep. a big black audience, which it did. Yep. And it, it just seemed like uh, now's the time. Yeah. Well, that's a, a nice transition to the second film on your list of the most uh, significant movies of 89, because it was uh, the third film by the director of She's Gotta Have It. Do the right thing. From Spike Lee. On the hottest day of the summer. It's going to be a scorcher today. You can do nothing. You the man. No, you the man. No, you the man. No, you the man. You can do something. Trust me. Mookie, the last time I trusted you, we ended up with a son. Or you can. Do the right thing. Rated R. There's, there's almost not words for how great it is, yeah. how timely it was, yeah. how timely it's remained mm-hmm. for every single year since then. Mm-hmm. And um, it all starts in Cannes. Okay. Um, okay, but it all starts really with his trajectory where you can't probably get from She's Gotta Have It to do the right thing in one step. Right. That would If you did, that would be amazing. I mean, there are some first to second feature ginormous strides that people have made, but I don't know if Spike could have done that. So School Days comes in between. Not a totally successful film commercially, not a totally successful film artistically, but a big stretch in terms of what he had to tackle um, in doing a musical and doing large-scale numbers with lots of people. Um, Since Do the Right Thing seems like it's very contained, Mm -hmm. one block, one hot summer day, right? Right. But on the other hand, in the end, when things explode, there's a lot to orchestrate. Yes, and he does it perfectly. Yeah, because he would hit it. You yeah. know, and that's you know that's a critical thing to keep in mind. So um, when he gets that, you know, he'd been in weird, weird David Putnam Columbia studio ground with School Days, and that right. had, that had not been a smooth thing. Right, because uh, Putnam got fired before the movie was released. Right, and Don Steely Don, Don, Steely Don, Steely, as he called Steely her, Don, Steely Don, not Spike's favorite. Um, <laughs> I have her book over here behind me somewhere. Yeah. Uh, interesting, but. Um, you know, this is where he lands at Universal with Do the Right Thing. And he lands because of uh, a, a guy named Sam Kidd, who I once worked for at a festival called American Mavericks, and Jim Jacks, um, who are the guys there that are really looking for the new fresh talent and uh, and spikes it. And it's fantastic that they made that film. They held a budget. Of course, it was a $6 million film. That's how far it was felt you could go mm-hmm. <laughs> with mm-hmm. these guys. Like, I think the Coen brothers got about that for Raising Arizona. Right. That was like the number. Right. You know, Rick got that even years later. Rick got that for Dazed and Confused. Kevin got that for Mallrats. That right. Was, that's what you got. That's the ceiling. That was it. Yeah. Um, and and it, it, so it was great that they did it. And it was great that it, that it uh, was a Cannes premiere. And then and then it was really weird um, to have it be up against Sex, Lies and Videotape. Right. It was also strange that Spike, you know, went to NYU Film School when Jim Jarmusch did. Mm-hmm. And they ran in parallel. Jim went first with um, with Stranger Than Paradise, which was in uh, the director's Fortnite in 84 and won the camera door. Jim was back in 86 when She's Gotta Have It was there. With Down by Law. Right. They were both um, Island Pictures. That was really exciting. That yeah. was really, really, really fun. Yeah. Um, and then in 89, uh, Spike's back with Do the Right Thing. And Jim's back with Mystery Train. Right. Which was one of the other really significant films in Cannes. So it was really it was really kind of a cool festival. Uh, it, it also, I had a film there, uh, which is a footnote film, but one that you can track down and is well worth your time called Sidewalk Stories. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. By Charles Lane, mm-hmm. which is, he plays a Chaplin-esque character. It's a, a black and white silent film yep. shot with a homeless guy 
taking care of his daughter on mm-hmm. the streets of New York. Yeah, very, very sort of the kid ass. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah. And a, a little longer probably than it should be, but that's my only uh, criticism. Right. I think it's a beautiful film. It the, is. Fran- the French loved it, and that was in the fortnight that year. Okay. And that's really, I was I would have probably gone for Spike anyway, but I was really <laughs> there uh, to sell uh, Sidewalk Stories, which... Um, which Island and Chris Blackwell bought, which is wonderful. Right. Um, but it was a it was a, it was a really interesting year. So that I'll never forget being there. The, the one of the clearest memories is a bad memory because a sweetie was there, the Jane Campion feature, mm-hmm. um, and that's the first time I heard that famous sound of seats flapping up as people walked uh, out of a screening on mass. You uh, know? It's like sweetie did not go over. That's wild. And I'm like, Oof, let's hope <laughs> that doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, but do the right thing. Played Gangbusters. Um, um, famously, the chair of the jury was uh, Vin Vendors, who had also spent a, a lot of time uh, involved with his films and driving him around America in mm-hmm. the in the seventies. Um, and 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 uh, Vim's jury uh, picked Sex Lies Videotape for the Palm Door. Overdo the right thing. Very very very. Uh, uh, well, it's a wonderful move. I appreciate the like going with the first feature and all that, mm-hmm. but it didn't make Spike happy. No. Um, no, famously did not make Spike happy. Yeah, and he did say We Was Robbed, which yes. I believe is a Brooklyn Dodgers uh, yes. citation. Yes, it is. Uh, but I think he also um, I think he also didn't like that then commented on the selection mm-hmm. by saying something like, what kind of hero is Mookie? Yeah. And do the right thing. And yeah. Spike pointed out that, you know, you're looking at a guy masturbating <laughs> to videotapes. Yeah. And sex lies a videotape. And like, what kind of hero exactly is that fair and point i picked the guy throwing the garbage can yeah. pizzeria window personally but yeah um so uh, yeah it was but it, that's that's like a a huge you know like a, a huge moment and the reason i think it's significant beyond the film itself mm-hmm. is that it showed the possibility for these no budget from nowhere independent probably film school types mm-hmm. Uh, that soon changed too. Mm-hmm. We're going to get to Roger and me. No film school for that guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, for them to show how they could, in fact, evolve. Yeah. And develop a career, a sustained career. Right. Over the course of time. Yeah. And really see this sort of a growth and an evolution in terms of style and scope the way that he did. Yeah. Yeah. Big time. Okay. So that takes us into end of May. And now we're into the summertime. And, and uh, John, what were you working on that summer? Well, that summer, <laughs> I, went to the main, I went to the main photographic workshop. So I kind of took a powder uh-huh. for a while when Michael Moore was trying to get in touch with me. <laughs> like, who's this jerk? He lives in New York, not some salt of the earth place like Flint, Michigan. Right. Which, hey, Mike, when's the last time you lived there? Um and here he is, summering in Maine. Mm-hmm. All right, I don't know if this is the right match for us uh-huh. you know, to get this like hard hitting but funny documentary sold. Um, but fortunately, I got back to New York in the nick of time um, to uh, to somehow uh, win him over that I was in fact the right guy. He was just looking to go. He wanted the Spike Lee model. He wanted. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna get my. I'm gonna get Spike's lawyer. I'm gonna get Spike's rep and Spike's lawyer, <laughs> and everything's gonna be good. And he. In fact, that's kind of good, good, good strategy. Hi, I'm Michael Moore. In my hometown of Flint, Michigan, General Motors closed the factories and put 30,000 people out of work. To raise their spirits, I made this movie. And went off to find GM Chairman Roger Smith to get some answers. Boy, 
boy, was he hard to get to. We're going to have to ask you to leave the club. Do you want me to call Rogersmith? That's off limits. Call General Motors. I really don't know. On the sidewalk. I don't think we've met. Do you have an appointment? Mr. Smith is not in. I don't understand. Would you mind leaving? So, yeah, so Roger and Me is his first feature-length documentary. Um, what what sort of appealed to you about it the first time you saw it? it again, the fact that um, that it's so on point and in-your-face hard-hitting mm-hmm. and yet so really funny. Right. Savagely funny, mm-hmm. darkly funny, and then ultimately pretty tragic. Yeah. Um, all rolled into one. And of course, uh, he wasn't the first to do it, put himself in the film, mm-hmm. you know, be the guy pursuing, right. you know, Don Quixote, you right. know, whatever. Right. Um, this, 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 this faceless, well, he did have a face, but this, you know, seemingly emotionless uh, corporate CEO right. who cared right. nothing about what havoc he was wreaking. Uh, and I'm saying that in a funny way. You, when people go like, "Is it really bad? That bad in Flint?" And I, I didn't, I wasn't from there. But I, when I went out there for the first time and drove down Saginaw, which is the main drag, I immediately said like, "Oh shit, this is worse than the movie shows." Damn. You know, everybody who says that just, just get out. Just call, Michael would say, "Just pick anybody out of the phone book and call them and ask what it's like." <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but anyway, so it was, it was great to see him uh, go front and center in the film. Not that he was a shy and retiring type. Sure. Um, Ross McElwee had done it before Mm -hmm. in Sherman's March. It's important to point that out. But in a a much more, how do we describe that? Well, self-effacing way as well. You know, the Southern. Yes. Yes. Gentlemanly. Yes. And Michael Moore is out here like as the the warrior. You know, he's out here with sword in hand ready to to take on the world. So so that was um, just a complete uh, stylistic breakthrough. Yeah. You know, in the form. And, you know, some purists didn't really take that the right way. And mm-hmm. as we as we will continue through the year and get to like, well, how come it didn't get an Oscar nomination? I mean, he he had too much success for a lot of the taste, of a lot of those. Right. Wh- who were then on the committee. But he also just had broken, you know, just the same way the Thin Blue Line the year before, right. which was not nominated, had done reenactments. Right. Who doesn't that, do that now? Right. right. You know, but at like the time, in, that was oh, cardinal rule. Yeah. yeah. They, they weren't even hardly doing them on reality, you know, um, you know, tabloid television shows. Right. You know, it's like it's almost like Errol showed those guys how to do <laughs> how to do true crime. Yeah. It was weird. Yeah. You know, except they didn't never had a, a milkshake, you know, like <laughs> flying across the interstate, you know, and splashing, splashing on the ground. Yes. You know, t- Teddy Bafalukas did those. Beautiful. Rockers. Do you ever see that film? No. He made a film in Jamaica uh, with a big, a very good reggae film called Rockers. I'll check it He's out. He's a Greek. Don't yeah. ask me how he did these two <laughs> things. Did Errol's recreations and a film, a reggae film. Great movie. Oh, you've seen that one? Great nice. movie. <laughs> Great movie. There you go. He's a rocker. She's a rocker. So explain then the the deal that that uh, that you got for Michael for Roger and me and how it was innovative. Uh, it's the quintessential fall festival movie, mm-hmm. um, and every festival enhanced its value. Mm-hmm. Telluride, it was probably you know like a hundred thousand dollar film. Uh, Toronto it was probably a half million dollar film. Between Toronto and the New York Film Festival, it became. A million plus dollar film, mm-hmm. and then uh, a- after its uh, pr- premiere, the first showing at the New York Film Festival, um, it suddenly became a studio worthy title. Okay, which made it 
Well, we had a rule of thumb about that, which was like, okay, we think these indies like Miramax, probably number one, would go up to one and a half million. So we can get double that from a studio because there will be, we will take shit for it. And there will be other repercussions as well. And, you know, who who knows exactly what these guys are going to do or how 100% fully you can trust them. I think that was probably more Michael than me, you Mm -hmm. know, because that's in his his blood to, you know, just wonder about those corrupt people <laughs> corporate um, types yeah, yeah. exactly yeah, yeah. um but then if we can get three million then and if we can go up the ladder and get three million uh let's do it and again to connect some dots to later the the studio that first flew us out and it was straight from toronto um to la was disney jesus weirdly and i kept thinking it's like is there some um does michael eisner have you know is he, does he hate GM? Does right. he have something going on in Michigan that I don't know? Did he marry a woman from Michigan? I, right. I, we can never find anything. Um, so I'm not really sure why that was first. But that didn't that didn't go real far real fast. Mm-hmm. Um, so Universal and Warners were the other two uh, bidders. Again, the people at uh, Universal who uh, you know love Spike. And they brought it right to Tom Pollock. And it was really interesting because they were never going to go to $3 million. And then Warners, you know, they, 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 they said yes. Yeah. And they said yes without a lot of hemming and hawing or back and forthing. Yeah. Um, and I, and I will, in thinking through this over the years, um, I think they got their money's worth, mm-hmm. but what else could have been going on in the background? Well, once again, the conspiracy theorists were always uh, thinking that Steve Ross, who at one point as he built his empire, which became a media empire, but didn't start that way. Mm-hmm. He had like, um, he provided cars for like, um, funerals and stuff like that in the early days. And somebody thought that he might have had a, like a GM, a really huge problem with the GM at one point as a supplier to him. And that like he was still waiting all these years to get back at Roger Smith. He would do anything. I, wow. I, I have no idea um, whether that could be true. I like this one, yeah, which is that uh, it was the year of the Time Warner merger. And it was that's the first major entertainment company mega merger. Mm. There, there had not been any before. Right. And so it got a lot. It was a hot topic. It got a lot of attention. And I think they love the idea, I think, of diffusing that. Right. By getting involved with this anti-corporate yep. screed. Yeah. It's also really funny. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, well, and, yeah. And, and so it's it's a weird, you know, and, and, and even weirder is, you know, when, we, when we're going to the Burbank uh Lot Warner's lot for the first time and looking at the wall oh, where yeah. they've got the big, you know, big painted versions of whatever uh, film posters or whatever is in release. Mm-hmm. You know, there's Batman. Yeah. And it's also the context of Time Warner merging is also the Batman that June. Yeah. Um, had become, I think, what you would call um, the first comic yep. franchise to get unleashed. Yeah. I mean, who knew what it would go on, how how much right. longer that would go on or how completely that would impact every single thing that's happened in the movie business since June of 1989. Right. It's also interesting since it's a Tim Burton film. It's like when you look at it now, I don't know, for me, it's still kind of an entertaining film. Right. Um, right. Well, I mean, that's yeah, that's what's crazy. And that's one of my favorite images in Spike, Mike, Slackers and Dykes is that photo of those posters of the Warner lot. The the, the, pure, the point when you've got we're side by side, Batman on one side and Roger and me on the it's other. It's unbelievable. I mean, we were when we first saw it, it was like, oh, that would be cool to be up there. And then we were up there. It was just, again, she's got to have it. Got a billboard on Sunset when nobody did that with indie right. films. Um, right over where the source used to be, right near the Chateau Marmont. That was another thing that was like, oh, my God. Right. A billboard on Sunset. Because Island was really thinking outside the box. Right. You know, so. But the the Warners thing, 
it's it's it is mystifying. And I know there have been all these, you know, later on in life, you get, you know, documentaries selling for 10 sure. and 20 million dollars. It's like, oh, what's three million? But oh, believe you me, three yeah. million for that film in 1989. That's like 300 million dollars. Yeah. Yeah. What, that's what that felt like. Yeah. Um, and they did. um they did everything they could, but they, you know, they were, the, the film was penalized for being too successful. And mm. then, of course, for, you call Pauline Kale your patron saint. She wrote the first really savage, trashy <laughs> that, film. Like, and, she's not always right. <laughs> but she, she, she's your patron saint. She called Roger and me patronizing. Yes. So there you go. It, it all links. It all goes together. It does indeed. All right. So moving into the fall then, uh, our next film in our, our top five most significant for 1989 what what caught your attention that fall? well i love uh, drugstore cowboy was on the circuit with us and i had known augustine's malanoche but not malanoche made like no impact right i mean really really obscure right as first features go maybe the time people have caught up with it over time we want to be gus van sant completus mm-hmm. um but it was it was kind of amazing to see how it came together it was another sign of the time a really good sign of the times how it came together that somebody like him could get a chance to make a film like that. Mm-hmm. Now, the most controversial film of the year. Remarkable. Sensational. Electrifying. A great movie. Matt Dillon. Kelly Lynch. Drugstore Cowboy. Rated R. Uh, which is very, very raw. Uh, very much so. With a cast like that, um, I mean, Matt Dillon was a big star. Yeah. I mean, a really big star. Yeah. Well, I mean, that really, if you think about it, is sort of the beginning of the kind of of the Pulp Fiction casting model. A little bit, a little bit here, here and there, but yeah. it's it would it's kind of stood out more. It's yeah. like, oh, why wow, he's he's doing this, and he's of course he's great in the movie. Of course. And 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 one thing that I years later I had Gus at a, do a master class at UT and we were talking about the the voiceover at the beginning of the drugstore is one of the best. I mean, it's not Sunset Boulevard. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you're talking like, right. hey, you don't like voiceovers? Here's a couple that you should reconsider. Right, right. But the voiceover at the beginning of drugstore is kind of brilliant in the way it sort of sets everything up really mm-hmm. simply and beautifully. Mm-hmm. And to this day, Gus feels like that was shoved down his throat and he hates oh, it. God. Isn't that funny? <laughs> how that, that works? is. That is. But but that was they were like our they were like our our boon companions um, through the fall because again it went it kept you know that whole that people still I'm not saying nobody had invented it before but that was a point in time when the festival fall festival trajectory was really getting going the idea that it could lead to awards right you know dominating right independent film dominating the awards right which is a I'm gonna say is a, Brief side note here, a mixed bag, because it's kind of like we won the battle but lost the war. Totally. I mean, we dominate the awards, but it's like, it would be nice if somebody saw the films right. in the general public. Because right. the films we're talking about had major cultural, general cultural traction. Right. You could see headlines in regular, in the New York Post, sure. that would riff on the title Sex, Lives, and Videotape on the assumption that everybody knew it. The Roger and Me structure you know something and me mm-hmm. people use that over and over and over again right. do the right thing give me a break you know it's just like all, these are these things became you know it's just part of the of the language even of the culture and it was assumed that people would know what you were talking about yep. you know try that with nomadland 
All right. Let me, let me, can I just say one last thing about Do the Right Thing and Batman and Warners? Absolutely. So, you know, Do the Right Thing was uh, certain critics, um, David Denby, uh, kind of being at the head of the class, uh, predicted um, catastrophe, yep. violence, yep. Uh, a long, hot summer of yep. uh, violence at the movies. And you know what? He turned out to be right. He's <laughs> right about Batman. Yeah. <laughs> There's a shooting at Batman. <laughs> At the Whitestone Theater outside New York, I, nothing ever happened to do the right thing. Of course as far not. As I know. Of you, course I not. think I think what happened to do the right thing, if I'm not mistaken, is that that was the uh, Barack and Michelle Obama's first date. Yep. So that, correct. You know, I don't think they were shooting each other. No, certainly not. Yeah. I will also mention uh, if you'd like to to know more about the initial critical reception and dire predictions of the reception for Do the Right Thing. Uh, listen to episode one of the Fun City Cinema podcast, where we dive deep into those cringeworthy quotes. Um, all right. So last but certainly not least for our most significant films of the year is a, a film that uh, I think all of these are sort of indies of some sort or another. And this one is very much not. Uh, what's number five and why? Little Mermaid. <laughs> for over 50 years, Walt Disney has turned classic stories into classic animated motion pictures. Now, the tradition continues with the story of the Little Mermaid who dreamed of becoming human. Human stuff, huh? Have you lost your senses completely? It's a holiday entertainment event filled with adventure, magic, and dozens of unforgettable new characters. It's an all-new Disney classic your family won't want to miss. Only in theaters, it's The Little Mermaid, rated G. Now playing at a theater near you. That's for my daughter, Georgia. She yeah. was She was two. I thought it was her first film, and then I went into my date book because, you know, I guess people don't take their two-year-olds to a lot of theatrical movies. <laughs> uh, and, and I probably made some big mistakes next year because eh. arachnophobia has oh, led God. to a, a, a lifetime of fear of spiders on oh, her no. part. But anyway, uh, she had, in fact, seen um, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids oh, God. before The Earlier Little Mermaid. Earlier that summer, okay. Uh, and so we got to admit that. But she loved The Little Mermaid as a two-year-old. Sure. And I remember sitting in an early word-of-mouth screening in front of Mike. Wallace of all people uh, <laughs> at the Guild uh, 50th, just off Rockefeller near Rockefeller Center, and um, you know I probably went because of her. But we've been hearing a lot about it. It's not like that film, opened, right? Uh, you know, but Disney Animation was sort of like a dead in the water, in the toilet yeah. at that point. Yeah, and Jeffrey Katzenberg had made it his mission in life to uh, change that. Yeah, and and wow, did yeah. he did he do that? Um, and for somebody who was uh, having and raising children in that era, you know, to start with Little Mermaid and then see that go on, you know, to the Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, and Aladdin. Yeah. it was it was really fun. Yeah, because they did. I mean, Toy Story even better if you're a smart person. Sure, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying I'm smart, but if I, if I were a smart person, right? Um, but it was so great to see um, to see those movies work. Um, for your kid and for you as a parent. For it to and, not be a chore to sit through a movie you're taking your kids to. And including the, you know, the 10,000 additional times that it wound up, you know, in the house on on mm-hmm. on, on video, which, yep. again, we gave all those away. I wonder how much they're the worth now. Big clamshell like cases. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, they're beautiful, actually. Oh, yeah. We moved to Texas and left the left the clamshells uh, with, our, with our neighbor. And I'm like, give me that. Yeah. <laughs> But that was, you know, again, I think it's genuinely uh, a delightful movie. And, yeah. and I, you might even once in a while catch me singing <laughs> Under the Sea or who knows what. Um, but uh, it was it was it was it was the it was the first in a delightful string with her. And of course, for for film history or for film industry history, right. that turned everything around. 
in Disney, which is clearly like the only company that's really mm-hmm. left right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and it's, and it's been, um, it's been a remarkable thing, uh, to, you know, to be an eyewitness to as you see these decades go by. Sure. It's one thing to see independent film come into its own and grow and grow and grow and, and mature. And then, and then, and then like nobody sees them anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but, but at the same time to see what's happened on the studio level. And, and of course it, it was exciting then and we're celebrating to have both things going on and to have all those other films in the middle, we used to call them, right. you know, that were like designed, you know, uh, to actually be good, yeah, and to actually get good reviews, yeah, um, and to actually be thoughtful, and um, you know, and to show on movie theater screens, mm-hmm. and and so it, it's it's been sad to see that that middle ground all go away, yeah. Um, but you can't, you, you only get to live forward. <laughs> we can't change it now. And there you go. All right. Well, John, this is this is a, a, a great list of movies, and also really appreciate you kind of walking us through it from the the insider perspective, which we don't get to hear all that often. So thank you for taking the time to put that together. Um, let's now pause to find out what films were were winning trophies and making money. So uh, here's Mike with awards and box office. Sell out with me, oh yeah, sell out. Oscar for Best Picture, Best Actress Jessica Tandy, and Best Adapted Screenplay for Alfred Uri, mm-hmm. Driving Miss Daisy. <laughs> Driving Miss Daisy. It's again Spike Driving later on. Miss Daisy. Can I? Let's just say in in the woke era we live in now. Could you imagine do the right thing coming out? Um, you know, two years ago, right? And how could it not literally win everything? Everything, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when what did it get a screenplay nomination? It got a he'll screenplay tell, nomination, he'll, he'll tell, he'll supporting actor nomination for for the one like white guy in the movie. The thing that I do remember about Driving Miss Daisy in the Oscars, Kim Basinger. Do you remember Kim Basinger at the Oscars that year? Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Came out. She was supposed to do the um, the the introduction for the clip for Driving Miss Daisy, and instead took the opportunity to talk about Do the Right Thing. Yes, she did. It was great. It was an amazing sort of ballsy Oscar moment. I think Spike was uh, maybe equally upset about Green Book. Mm. And I'll tell you why. This goes back to like body of work, test of time, Mm -hmm. you know, all those qualities Mm -hmm. that are meaningful to to him and to us, I think. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I think he knew... That he, in the end, he'd won because he said, when's the last time you've ever heard of anybody even watching Driving Miss Daisy? Yeah. I, I never made it all the way through. Yeah. But, you know, Green Book still was new, so you didn't, you couldn't say that yet. Right. You could just project it like two years from now. Oh, yeah. You know, because it'll be true. And it is. <laughs> and it is. <laughs> <laughs> but Driving Miss Daisy, the proof was in the pudding. It yeah. was, it was, to- it was like, what? Yeah. yeah. Long forgotten. And yet here we are still talking about doing the right thing. Mike, what else won Oscars that year? Best director went to Oliver Stone for Born on the Fourth of July. Thoughts, John, on Born on the Fourth yeah, of July? Yeah, I, I, I haven't seen it in a long time, but I love that film. And I yeah. know I, I, I look back at when I saw it. I see, I see that was a very late in the year entry, right? Mm-hmm. Just in the nick of time to get to qualify. Yes. Um, so it's weird because now you, when we think of Ron Kovic, when I think of Ron Kovic, I think of Bruce Spring- Springsteen telling stories about Ron Kovic. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, wait a second, there's other, the, yes. the movie, the movie. Yes, exactly. Um, and that Oliver Stone role was yeah. a very, very, very potent and exciting role. Yeah, yeah. He was, he was doing the thing for a minute there. Yep. What else, Mike? Best actor to Daniel Day-Lewis and best supporting actress to Brenda Fricker for My Left Foot. Yeah, I got it. Which literally starts with a shot of a left foot. Yeah. Yes, it does. Hey, that's 
<laughs> the start of a couple of things okay. that are really important. One mm-hmm. is the first really hard push Oscar campaign in serious categories, not like foreign language film, mm-hmm. for Harvey and Miramax as he was perfecting the system that we're all living with today. Right. That was awards campaigning at its fiercest first. Yeah. Right then, right there with my left foot. It's also, after seeing him in like Room with a View, mm-hmm. or, you know, rougher but still kind of lovable in um, My Beautiful Laundrette, mm-hmm. it's Daniel Day-Lewis' extreme version for the first yes. time. Yes, yes. Which has also yielded many, many, many rewards in the in the following years, so that's a that I kept like that was on and off my five. Yeah, you stuck you stuck me to five. <laughs> it's a big. It's but a, it's a, it's a you know it's a it's a it's a very important film. Yeah, um, and a very fine one. Is it, I haven't seen it in a long time. Holds yeah, up. Yeah, holds up. And cool. Mike Mike just watched it too and, and was really into it as well. Yeah. Um, what else? Yeah, and I didn't. I wanted to be cynical about it. Like it starts with the foot, and I'm texting Jason. Like, oh, it starts with the foot. The whole fucking movie is going to be like this, isn't it? And you know, of course, you know, by by the time like anything good happens for even the kid version, before Daniel Day Lewis even gets to really act, yeah, you know, you're already just sort of so in it and want him to win so hard. Yeah, yeah, great movie, great yeah. movie. Uh, best original screenplay to Tom Schulman for Dead Poets Society. <laughs> this is that's the screenplay that beat do the right thing for best original screenplay hey all our love to ethan hawk at least because yes. he's been such a mainstay for yes. richard linklater's entire career yep but that's about all i can say all right <laughs> best supporting actor went to denzel washington for glory that Good one film. tier Good film. that one Solid. tier suddenly it it came down and it changed color and it reshaped itself into a yeah a statue. People really talk about that tier like a lot, mm-hmm. and I just, I just wonder has he commented? I mean, does that make it feel all these years later like yeah. oh, give it up already on the tier? You know? <laughs> I mean, he's brilliant from top to bottom in that movie. Like yeah. a lot of concentration goes to the tier, but yeah, he's he's you know he's just so young in the beginning of it. Yeah. yeah, you know, just so sort of full in piss and vinegar and yep. and energy and yeah, good movie, best score and best song to Under the Sea for The Little Mermaid. What yeah. else? Of course, it should have been Fight the so, Power, but <laughs> yes, it should you know, have. if it had to be something else, there you go. There's your winner. There you go. <laughs> and best foreign film went to Cinema Paradiso. One word about this um, again: Miramax was really good at finding what 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 would appeal to people's hearts. I don't mm-hmm. know how else to describe it. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm totally into the magic of movie theaters. I mean, I had a movie theater in Fiji. Yes. You know, which everybody was like, oh, it's your cinema paradiso. And I'm like, oh, don't ruin it for me that way. Because <laughs> it just milks it and milks it and milks it. Yeah. Um, uh, but on the other hand, it's when you go back and look at how many people actually went to see went out to see those movies or saw yeah. them later on in whatever yeah. format they were available it's such an enormous number you know it, go, yep. it goes through the years with that even even as late as like city of god grossing 30 million dollars oh, yeah. you know in the once you turn to the new, new millennium it's just like in, incredible how 
how much of a, a, a you know a thumb on the it's not even on the pulse it's like directly on your heart right that that uh, that they had and and for how to market directly to to that organ <laughs> and, and and have to overcome you know some of them and I'm not going to call them cynical I mean there's yeah. good critical reason to like raise raise questions about some some of those heartfelt things I feel life is beautiful is the same way for me I'm sorry I never went for it never will Meaning don't that. even like people who like it most right. <laughs> But I understand how 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 big a thing that is yeah. to like actually have that impact people. Yep. Yeah, makes sense. All right, what were some of our we we I, I want to make sure that we had lots of Golden Globe winners in for for you, John, because <laughs> I know what a fan you are of us including the Golden Globes in the show. So, Mike, what what did well at the Golden Globes that year? Best actress in a drama to Michelle Pfeiffer for Fabulous Baker Boys. Great little film. I love the fucking Fabulous Baker. It's been Boys. a long time, but it is, it was oh. really sexy. Oh, it's a good movie. It's and her and that was the first movie where as a young movie goer, I was like, this is Jeff Bridges. This yeah. guy's a good actor. This guy this guy's up to something. Yeah, I cut high school to see Last Picture Show, so ah, I got a go. long I got a long history with that guy. Yeah, <laughs> Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress went to Julia Roberts for Steel Magnolias. John, thoughts on this Steel Magnolias? movie was very popular in my house <laughs> in in 1989 have, and early 90s. Have not seen it, but I think you're probably. I think I, I doubt you will. Then I think you made it out of its popularity. Challenge me. Zone. Challenge me. What do you give me? <laughs> This was diabetes representation. That's you don't true. understand. That Very was a big. big deal in my house. Very big. They did it well. Uh, BAFTA for Best Director went to Kenneth Branagh for Henry V. Remember that Branagh, Henry V? Yeah, that was also, it wasn't in uh, any of the competitions or uh, any of the sections in CAM, but it had a market screening there. I remember all, I remember going to that market screening and every single distributor was there and uh, you could you could you could see the more literate types in the room you know i think that was goldman in the end i think mm-hmm. tommy roth sounds ran, right tommy roth ran, ran uh, goldman then uh, uh goldwin then and um, i think that's probably right where he locked in on it right away so yeah. hey, kudos to him I, I as shakespeare adaptations go that's a good one it is it is indeed were anybody watching any of these movies though yeah, sure. No, Henry V. Almost. Did. That's the whole point. In yeah. 1989, anything that you're hearing that we're talking about now, people saw all of them. Yeah. Way in numbers, way beyond. Even if you, if anybody was able to count how many people really watch anything on streaming platforms, right? Way beyond what people are seeing now. You could actually go out on the street and talk to people, <laughs> and they'd know what you were talking about. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. All right, but let's do this top ten. All right. Ready. What do you think? Box yeah. office? Let's do it. See if any of these are in the box office. <laughs> oh, God. Number okay. 10 was Dead Poets Society. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> People liked that movie. They Number did. nine, Parenthood. That's a Steve Martin joint, right? Steve Martin and Ron Howard. It's it's a good film. It is a good film. It's a well-made, well-crafted ensemble family comedy drama. I rewatched it fairly recently and enjoyed it quite a bit. Is that the one where he gets in a car wreck behind some roadhead and he's very embarrassed? I believe that does happen in the film. Yes. Yes. I believe you're right. Yes. <laughs> I remember one thing from it. Yes. Number indeed. eight was Driving Miss Daisy on the uh, way to, okay. uh, to all those Oscars. Yeah. Number seven, Ghostbusters 2. You know, I was I was 13 when Ghostbusters 2 came out, and I didn't even like it then. I was so bummed. <laughs> it was a real bummer. It was... It, it, you know what I did like though? Back to the Future Part Two. I didn't Definitely like. Definitely saw the that Fu- in the theater in '89. I didn't like Back to the Future Part Two either. That was our number six for the year. Uh, you know, it's good sci-fi, but it's not funny. And they forgot to put the jokes into Back to the Future Part Two, and that's the reason I love Back to the Future is because it's so funny. I don't know if I've seen it since '89, but All I right. did remember. I do remember you did, en- you did enjoy it. All right. 
Uh, yeah, thirteen. Not going to mount a defense taste, for it. Though. Okay. <laughs> nope, not even close. Uh, number five, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Yeah. Oh, hey, the aforementioned Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Honey, the kids is genius. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. Rick Moranis doing Rick, the thing. Rick, Rick Moranis was never, never so good. Number four, uh, Look Who's Talking. You remember Look Mm-mm. Who's Talking? Nope. Nope. <laughs> Not, nope. And neither do you. Hasn't Didn't held exist. Hasn't held up. Number three, Lethal Weapon 2. Does the building blow up in that one that they're running away from? That's the beginning of the third one. That's three, okay. The second one is the one where he's stuck on the toilet. And then when he gets up from the toilet, It'll blow it's going to yeah, blow yeah, up. It's yeah, it's one of those, one of those land, yeah. landmine type things, but yes. it's a toilet landmine. Yes, exactly. No comment. Another Warner Brothers uh, Summer of 89 movie, John. It seems like they had a good year. They sure did. <laughs> All right. That movie feels a lot different after you've been on any set before. Yeah. <laughs> because it just looks fucking miserable when you watch that movie after having done a couple of these things, yeah. you know? Can't imagine how hot that just hot balls. Yep. It just the whole place smelled like hot balls. Yep. I lived in the village, uh, middle of the village at that point on mm-hmm. something called McDougal Alley, and which is just off Eighth Street between Eighth Street and Washington Square Park. And my commercial theater for all these top ten type films right. was called the Movie Land Eighth Street. Once, <laughs> once upon a time, it had been the Art Theater, I believe, but it was oh, now wow. Movie Land. And Movie it's, Land. It's such a generic name, and it was such a generic theater, and it actually was just kind of a terrible place, <laughs> even for Lethal Weapon 2. Yeah. You just did not feel like any magic was about to ensue <laughs> in Movie Land. When you walked in there, and you know, it was like no stadium seating yet, right. no really good Dolby sound yet. It was like there was nothing to recommend. Right. Aye, aye, aye. Number two, uh, I definitely gave whatever the ticket price was to to this budget indiana jones and the last crusade i definitely went to that one. i definitely went to that one my 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 wife janet disagrees on any and all these indiana jones films uh-huh. i told her the other day i'm excited for the new one uh-huh <laughs> she goes oh you better find somebody else to go with <laughs> i loved it you enjoyed you, this was the one with sean connery man how could you not like seeing uh, indiana jones and james bond together and number one Right next to Roger and me on the poster wall, Batman. Yeah, start of an era, beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I I rewatched it fairly recently. Um, when the 4K came out, it's it's kind of like barely a movie. Like it's very scotch taped together. It's sketchy. Yes, <laughs> it's and it really does feel like they said, okay, if we're paying Jack all of this money, we better put him in any scene and and include every single scene that we shot with him. Because they paid that man like a fortune, yeah. if memory serves. I think that's way. But if you want to get something else that's a little sketchy, mm-hmm. listen to the Prince soundtrack without the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Oh boy. All right, John Pearson, you want to do a uh, do a five minute lightning round? See what else we can hit from the year nineteen eighty nine. I would love to do that. I'm just so disappointed. I just I just had reason to think long and hard about I'm going to get you sucker the other day, and I saw that I'd seen it in January, and I but then I looked back and it was released December the previous year. Oh, so because no. you can't bring it up in the lightning round, I'm bringing it up as one of my my first great film of the nineteen eighty nine was I'm going to get you sucker. Fair. <laughs> that is an acceptable uh, amendment yeah. to the lightning round. All you get right. a pass for that. Yeah. There you go. It is. It's God. It's a funny movie. Chris uh, Chris Rock, of course, is mm-hmm. it's his first big moment. Yes. But in the in the companion, if you, I don't know if you've seen his special yet or not. But in the companion piece that Marlon Wayans it has on HBO right now, that mm-hmm. traces his whole history with Chris. Mm-hmm. 
<clears throat> and with Will and and with and with what's her name? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, he talks about how that his brothers told him that was supposed to be his role. Oh and gave no! It to Chris. So anyway, I just like all my I'm going to get you sucker memories came back because he started <laughs> doing all Chris's lines, and then he goes, "But I'm pedestrian number two and he describes it. I'm like, "I remember that scene." <laughs> <laughs> all right, Mike, restart the clock for give me give me five minutes. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> Enemies, a love story. Seen it. Wonder if anybody likes it anymore. I don't really remember. Okay. Critically acclaimed to the nth degree. Crimes and Misdemeanors from Woody Allen. I know we're not supposed to talk about him, but that's <laughs> one great movie. It is. And uh, but my but but again, I'm going to invoke Janet again. She'll be happy when she hears this because you talked about me so much. That is the movie um, that she still won't admit is a great movie. She's hey, she turns against Manhattan. There's not that much I can do about sure. that. But Crimes and Misdemeanors is still there. It's still really, truly great. She goes if she watched it now, she would wind up thinking that Woody actually had killed somebody and gotten away with it. <laughs> That was not the only Woody Allen movie out in 1989. We also saw the release of the triptych New York Stories by Woody Coppola and Scorsese. Yeah, I'm very fuzzy on that movie. But mm-hmm. but but wasn't it weird? That was completely weird to do an, a, an American anthology yes. movie, right? Yes. I mean, even the Europeans had sort of stopped, hadn't yes. they? Yes, yeah. The only one that holds up is the Scorsese. It's yeah. that first one, the the Nick Nolte and Rosanna Arquette. That's the one, right? That's the good one. Yeah, that's the good one. Um, you could really tell that um, Platoon had made a lot of money and won a lot of Oscars two years previous because we had a lot of Vietnam movies in 89, including Casualties of War, Jackknife, and In Country. I, I did not see Jackknife in country. I don't remember well, but I remember it seems solid. And you're 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 going back to Pauline Kale, your patron, once again <laughs> on Casualties of War, which of course she went gaga for, nuts for. Yeah, um, and that might have impacted my, n- me not going nuts for the movie, um, pr- my, and not being sure about Michael J. Fox, which I know mm-hmm. is where a lot of people sort of like may, sort of draw right. their line in the sand. Right. I, th- you know, it's just like that may have like turned me. I, that's a movie I need to see again, though. Gotcha. Heathers was released in 1989. That was a Sundance movie. Great movie. Yeah. Uh, it was really a bold move for Sundance to premiere something like that. Um, they'd done Hairspray the year before, mm-hmm. and everybody was like, why is it? It wasn't in competition or anything, but it was a, a premiere. And everybody was like, it's Don Waters, so like that's why it's there. Right. But everybody was like, why is this here? And I'm like, because it's actually, this is a terrible year, and it's actually a really in- entertaining film. Thank God it's here. <laughs> um, but Heathers, again, was a stretch. It's just like, oh. Yeah. Um, yeah, dark, dark, dark. I don't know if you do you really feel great about the it sustaining, you know, itself all the way to the end. I don't know. I'm I'm not sure. I feel like that's a movie that people selectively edit in their heads and they just remember the moments that they really like from it. it, it, it to me, it's the first half, second half movie where it's just sort of so great. And then Idiocracy, by the way, everybody like goes, oh, that movie was so great and so predictive. If you watch Idiocracy now, I'm sorry, the last half hour of that movie's terrible. Right. Really, the first half hour is like about it's as great. good as it gets. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, mentioned it earlier. Uh, Jim Jarmusch's Mystery Train. Yeah, I love Mystery Train. Great movie. I love every single thing about Mystery Train. Yeah, yeah. Screaming Jay Hawkins. Terrific. <laughs> Miss Firecracker was released in 1980. Okay, well, what is that? Okay. Uh, the aforementioned the the Sundance Grand Prize winner was not Sex Lies, but was True Love. Correct. Uh, yes, Sex Lies won the uh, the popular prize. Right. Whatever that was called. Right. Um, Toronto, by the way, where Roger and me won, it was the Labatt Prize at hey, that point. Nice. It had come up in the world. It was <laughs> <Nice>. a beer. <laughs> um, 
Yes, True Love. I, I actually wrote the program note. I'm looking at it. I wrote mm. the program note in the catalog for True Love. And I thought it was I thought it was a incredible emerging emergent role for Annabella Scoria, if I'm saying that correctly. Mm-hmm. And it made me fascinated to watch every single aspect of her career from that on, including when she intersects with Spike in Jungle Fever. Yeah. Um, and I know people say she's, you know, she's crazy. And I, when I know a lot of other people say, no, that's because the right. know, how she was, a, how people treated her. And I, I, don't, I don't know her. Right. Very, very curious about her whole life story. But what a, what a start. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. Ron Eldard. Yeah. Not quite as notable a career, but he's very good in that. Very film. good in it. Uh, Miracle Mile was released. In By the way, TV. though, they had a poster for True Love. On the toilet, right? The toilet. <laughs> Maybe wasn't the way to get people to see the movie. Even in an era when I'm telling you, everybody used to go to these things. Yeah. Maybe not if you put a toilet in the ad. <laughs> Miracle Mile was released in 89. You remember yeah, this Yeah, I do. I do. It's like a weird, it's one of those weird post-apocalyptic. Yeah. yeah. It's like, there's nobody here, but it's like in LA after, after about eight, sometimes you feel like there's nobody there. So they didn't have to wait that late to shoot that thing. <laughs> It's on Wilshire, right? It's yes. like on Wilshire. It's not like it's on a uh, out of the way block. They didn't uh, have a coyote running through, though. That's what I like. And late at night in L.A., when you actually see wildlife, yeah, you know, like in the Michael Mann touch there. Yeah. Bill Forsythe's Breaking In was released in eight. Again, I'm not. We could talk about local hero, but I'm I'm breaking in. I'm Claire Denise Chocolat. Great, great movie. I'm not as fond of some of the later movies, like. I thought it was weirder in that sight and sound poll where Jean Dielman had gone all the way to number one. Um, the fact that uh, now I'm blanking on the French Foreign Legion. Oh, Beautravant. Yeah, the fact that Beautravant had gone had, was number seven. Right on that list. I, I'm not down for that. I mean, <laughs> hey, we need some correcting here, but we don't need to put you know, give a number one to you know. Uh, the, the, no, I liked. I really love Jean Dielman. So you know what? Right. I'm going to even say for right now. Power move. That's great. Right. But Bo Trevi at number seven, greatest film of all time. I'm not going there. But Chocolat, what a great auspicious start. And how interesting that she kind of apprenticed, you know, with other filmmakers, um, you know, on her on her way to getting the confidence uh, to write and direct on her own. Great. All right. That is our lightning round. Nothing Ch- like no exploitation. You, you keep me away from like some great exploitation uh, films that you've given other people. On I'll show? throw you a couple more. Uh, <laughs> Cannibal Women in the Avocado Jungle of Death right, with Shannon right, Tweed right. and Bill Maher came out. Now you got to show me up. What else we got? No, a K- the, the double bill of Canine and Turner and Hooch. Both of those uh, came out. That would see like that's you're talking my language because <laughs> I spent a lot of time on 42nd Street before it got cleaned up. <laughs> uh, the John Belushi uh, biopic Wired came out in '89. You remember that one? Uh, and of course, everyone's favorite uh, UHF, starring Weird Al Yankovic, was released in '89. Oh, he, he made it. He made it back with a vengeance this year, didn't he? He sure did. It took a while. All right, now we're going to throw it to our friend W. Axel Foley for a quick PSA. Head on over to your favorite podcasting app. Give us a star, a rate, a review. Give us a written review and tell us that you love us, because that's what lets people know that we're here. And John, you're not on social media. This is usually the part where we ask people their Twitter handles and stuff. And you've wisely eschewed the entire thing. It started when I was teaching. Yeah. Um, when I was a professor at UT, I just figured these students will get everything they need to know about me live in the classroom. And I don't really want them to know anything else because I had people already looking up like what property tax I paid <laughs> oh, or God. stuff that's on the public record. Yeah. You know, so like I no, that's how it started, and then it kept going because I I really do fear like what I might say. <laughs> That's fair. That's the know thyself. 
I but think, I think I do. But uh, I will say again, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, John's book, uh, which is in its original printing, is Spike, Mike, Slackers, and Dykes. The paperback reprinting with expanded more stuff is Spike, Mike, Reloaded. And then it's back to Spike, Mike, Slackers, and Dykes in the latest edition from UT Press. So great. Yeah, it's it's just it's just indispensable. It's like it, it, it is such uh, it's such a, a, a detailed, meticulous walkthrough of what was going on in indie cinema in the late 80s and early 90s. But also, you know, thanks to these interludes, which are conversations between John and Kevin Smith. It's also just really funny and really entertaining. And it's just a really breezy, great read. I just I it's it's one of my favorite movie books of ever. I you were you are too you you are too kind. Um, and again, uh, one of the funny stories that just came up uh, when we got our Hall of Fame induction last mm-hmm. week with Kevin is, you know, he said to everybody there, like, and the Pearsons didn't take a dime when they sold clerks. And I'm like, yeah, we just took it out of you in blood for years <laughs> to come. And the first thing was you had to do those dialogues with me for the book because I need I knew how funny you were. And we needed a young representative filmmaker yeah. who would say things like. I didn't need to watch all those, you know, European world cinema titles because, you know, like Spike and Jarmish and all those guys did it for me. Right. I could just watch how they processed it into their films, which was, oh boy, but did people give him shit for that? But yeah. you know what? He kind of a good point. Kind of a good in point. In a way. But, but uh, you, you, are, you are very kind. I, I'm very proud of the book. And anytime somebody reads it to this day and reaches out, uh, I'm, I'm, <laughs> however they find me, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just, I just, not, it really makes me happy. Yeah. That it's, it stayed, that sort of stayed around. Yeah. As well it should. And the show, while we're at it, yes. can I talk about Split Screen? Absolutely. Split Screen has a permanent home mm-hmm. on Criterion Channel, all 60 plus episodes. Yeah. And I'm not saying that every single episode's fantastic, but you know what? They're all Pretty solid. Pretty solid. And it's thirty that I would actually say are good. Yeah. Well, you know, and and it was it really was a, it was a, a, a fascinating format, this sort of magazine format, but where you were spotlighting new films, spotlighting new filmmakers, and also uh, giving young filmmakers an opportunity to like make a thing that would be on television. It's 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 where Blair Witch started. There you go. It's also where Christopher Walken who wanted to do a cooking show at the time and needed a little sample, <laughs> made exploding shrimp. <laughs> like, if that's not something to go seek out, I don't know what is. You have to watch that. All right, folks, I'm Jason Dash Bailey on Twitter, Fun City Cinema on Instagram. Mike, you are? I am at BrainwashedLib on Twitter. And Mike, before we go, what is your favorite movie of 1989? My favorite movie of 1989 in 1989 was the Christian Slater skateboarding vehicle Gleaming the Cube. <laughs> Uh, which, if you loved it then, you will love it now. If you yeah. don't have nostalgia for it, carry on with your life. But as an adult, my favorite movie in 1989 is Harlem Nights. <laughs> it's, I mean, Della Reese, Ray Pryor, Red Fox, Eddie Murphy. I, it's just, it's a, I, it's a wonderful movie. I love it. How about you? You know, usually I like to pull out the sort of semi-obscure thing, the thing we haven't talked about, whatever, whatever, whatever. I can't sit on here and act like there's any movie for me beyond Do the Right Thing. It's just like it's it it hits you like a fucking bag of bricks the first time you see it. And every time after, it still hits you like that. Um, and there's always something to discover in it. Like, that's my favorite thing about it is that like because of the the way that he shot it, because he cordoned off that block for the entire shoot, because he told the cast to be there for the entire shoot and to stay out of their trailers and to just live their lives. Like, I'm always, 
on, you know, I've seen it, I don't know, 30 times by now, but I'll still spot like for the first time somebody doing a bit of business in the background of a scene that I, that has never occurred to me before. And it's like that sense of just of, of a block being captured in progress is, I think, what keeps it from being, uh, you know, sort of didactic or, or formulaic or any of the sort of things that it could have so easily been. I wish I had a time machine to go back with you to take you to that set. Ugh. Because I, I visited a few times, yeah. and it was magic. Yeah. And you would really, really, really love to have been there. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I definitely would have. All right, John Pearson, thank you so much for doing this. All my pleasure. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for listening. Doctor? Come on, what? What? Always do the right thing. That's it? That's it. I got it. I'm gone.